passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, such a privilege to get to open up God's Word um, together this morning. Um, this is the final Sunday of our four-week series, kind of laying out um, the, the five-year vision of our church, as our elders have been praying about over the last um, several months. And uh, we're going to focus on the final of our seven vision points this morning, and that is this. We ask big things of people because we expect big things of God. And this morning, we're going to dive deep into what it means for us to have a culture of, of expectancy, that we would be a people who expect big things of one another, big things of our church here at Crosswinds, because we expect God to be at work in big and mighty ways. And as we begin, I just want us to ask and, and consider, what, what would it actually look like for us to be this church that is unafraid to do that? Unafraid to actually ask people to live out uh, what Jesus says in the New Testament, that we would be willing as a church to be wholly devoted to the mission that Jesus has entrusted to our church. This is something that Jesus has, has really done from the, the very beginning. This is how God operates in the scriptures. God has never shied away from asking big things of his people. You look at the testimony of Scripture and you see Jesus say something like this to his followers. He says, anyone, whoever does not take his cross up and follow me is not worthy of me. And when you hear that from Jesus, you're forced to, to wrestle with or conclude that, that on the one hand, Jesus is either exceedingly arrogant or he's exceedingly worthy of giving your life to. That there cannot be any middle ground when it comes to this Jesus. That God always asks big things of those who would follow him because we can expect big things of God. We see that over and over and over in the book of Acts. That God asks big things of his people. He asks them to make massive sacrifices, sometimes even laying down their lives for the sake of his name. And we see that it is because he plans on doing incredible things incredible things through his church. This morning we're actually going to look at one of those passages. We're going to look at the, this passage where, where God asks big things of Peter. That God actually asks Peter to, to change his entire paradigm of what does it actually mean to be saved? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus the Messiah? If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Acts chapter 10. That's where we're going to be this morning. Acts chapter 10 tells us of one of the most important events. One of the most important events in the New Testament. Really, in the entire Bible, in human history. It's so important that the book of Acts actually tells us about, tells us about it three times. Here in Acts chapter 10, and then Peter tells, us, tells the, the church in Jerusalem about it in Acts chapter 11, and then he mentions it again in Acts chapter 15. And one of the things that I find so beautiful about here in Acts chapter 10 is that it shows us this very real wrestling that is going on in Peter's heart. The very real wrestling that can oftentimes happen in God's people. 
And I think it's beautiful because this is happening not just in the heart of, of, of an, a, a regular person, but this is the leader of Jesus' church, Peter, is wrestling with what exactly does it mean for me to join Jesus in his mission. Acts chapter 10 is a chapter that's all about conversion. We get to the end of Acts chapter 10 and we see that Cornelius converts or becomes a Christian in it. But before we get to the uh, conversion of Cornelius, we actually see this conversion of Peter. This conversion of his heart, this heart change from Peter to the mission of God. That's the way that David Helm, a pastor in the Chicago area, describes this passage. He says this is the, the conversion of the heart of Peter to the mission of God. I think that's a beautiful way at looking at this passage because it's really an encouragement to us as we consider what God might be asking of each and every one of us. If even Peter, one of Jesus's closest friends, the leader of the church, if even Peter struggled with the idea of what does it mean to join Jesus in his mission, then there is a grace for us as well when we struggle and when we wrestle and hopefully as we grow as followers of Jesus. So let's go ahead and, and consider Acts chapter 10. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture this morning. This is a lengthy chapter. We want to see how Jesus is at work in Acts chapter 10. First, with Jesus' first mission field, Cornelius. And then after that, Jesus' second mission field, actually the heart of Peter. And then finally, how Peter joins in the mission of Jesus. Let's pray as we approach God's word. Father, it is uh, such a, a good thing to have your word. And we open it this morning with great expectation. We know and we rejoice that your st spirit still speaks to us today, and we are thankful for that. And so as we open your word, we ask that you would, in your mercy, speak to us. God, I ask that every single person here, every single person who is watching online, would respond with obedience to the call of the gospel. That we would join you in your mission. That God, we would be on mission to see people brought into your family. We ask that you would enable us to respond with faith to the big asks that you make of your people, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Acts chapter 10. Um, really, the, the book of Acts starts by reminding us that this is how Jesus is at work in the church. Uh, Jesus' work doesn't finish at the end of the Gospels, but Jesus continues to be at work through the mission of his church. And Acts chapter 10 tells us about how Jesus is at work and how he's on a mission. Specifically, how he's on a mission with Cornelius and how he's on a mission with Peter. Let's start by looking at Cornelius in verses 1 through 8. As Caesarea... There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is there lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. 
When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Well, we have a lot of text to cover, so I just want to highlight a two, uh, two really important things here in this passage about Cornelius. Verse 1 tells us about Cornelius' very high status. Cornelius is someone who lives in Caesarea. Caesarea was the largest city in Judea at that time. It was the capital of the Roman province in the first century. Cornelius was a centurion. That was the equivalent of an army captain today. And centurions, they would rise through the ranks of the Roman military until they would get to this point where they were actually placed over a hundred different soldiers. Cornelius would have been an experienced man. Centurions were well paid, and so he was a very wealthy man as well. But notice that he's not just a centurion. He's not just an army captain. He's a leader in this cohort, this group of, 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 of soldiers called the Italian cohort. Now, the way the Roman Empire and their army worked in the first century is that they would oftentimes conscript the, the conquered peoples to be a part of their army. But this group of, of soldiers that, centur- that uh, Cornelius was a leader of was referred to as the Italian cohort. It was made up exclusively of soldiers who had been from Rome or from the Italian area surrounding Rome. They had this high status. They were privileged because they were Roman citizens. So verse 1 tells us of this man who is living near the places of political power. He's this hardened war veteran. He's very wealthy and he's also very prestigious. He comes from almost noble birth. Verse 1 tells us of his high status. Verse 2 tells us of his high character tells us that he is a devout man who feared God, and he leads his household in the exact same devotion of God. His character is on display both in his horizontal actions towards others as well as his vertical response to who God is. Verse verse 2 tells us that he gave alms generously to the people. He saw that his substantial wealth was not something to be squandered upon himself, but actually was a responsibility to take care of the poor. So we have this picture here of Cornelius, really what is the Roman's Roman, who knew that following the God of Israel meant that he has this horizontal responsibility toward other people to take care of those who are on the fringes of society. His character also has this vertical component as well. Verse 2 tells us that he would pray continually to God. Now, it's important for us to note that just because he's devout doesn't mean that he was a Jew. Here is a man who worships God, but he worships God from a distance. He doesn't convert to Judaism. He doesn't convert to Judaism with all of its rigorous uh, purity laws and and circumcision. As an Italian uh, centurion, that would have been impossible for him to make that step. And so he continues to worship this God, admire this God, but he does so from uh, from a distance. Because for him to actually enter into the family of God would have been impossible for a man like him. Thank God that God intervenes into this man's life. Verses 3 through 6 tell us that while Cornelius is praying, that's what Acts chapter 10 verse 30 tells us, that he was actually praying during this time. This angel appears and says to Cornelius that God has heard his prayers. What's more, it actually tells us that Cornelius' prayers and his compassion toward the poor have ascended as this memorial 
to God. That's what we see in verse 4. This word memorial is a very important word. Whenever the Bible speaks about memorials or, or God specifically remembering things, it's a way of saying that God is completely and utterly committed to keeping his promises. So we see in Psalm 105, verse 8, God is talking to his people and says, He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. So here, when this angel says, your prayers have risen as this memorial to God, we're given some insight into what exactly Cornelius is praying for. We see he's actually, he's praying for salvation. Now let's unpack this a little bit because it's important and it's not immediately clear. We have to consider how Cornelius conveys what took place all the way in, in verse 31 as he's talking to Peter later on in this chapter. He says, Cornelius, this angel said to me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. So this angel appears to Cornelius and says, your prayers have been heard. And of course, that implies that if this angel is appearing to him and saying that God has heard your prayers, also that God is going to answer your prayers. That God isn't going to send a messenger to Cornelius and say, hey, you know what, Cornelius, I just want you to know I heard your prayers, but I'm not going to listen to them. Have a nice day. No, this is a, the implication of this is I have heard your prayers and I'm going to answer them. And immediately after that, he says, I want you to send some people all the way to Joppa. You're going to find this man named Peter, and he is going to tell you how you might be saved. So here is Cornelius. He's standing outside the people of God. He cannot get in. It's physically impossible for him to get into the family of God. And he is asking God for mercy. He is asking God to save him. And it says that God remembers his covenant. Specifically, he remembers his new covenant that is made in King Jesus with all the peoples of the world. And he sends this angel to Cornelius and says, send people to Joppa and you'll find someone there who will tell you how you might be saved. How does Cornelius respond? What we see in this passage, he responds with instant obedience. Cornelius doesn't really understand what is happening. Verse 33 of Acts chapter 10 tells us that. He doesn't, he doesn't really know what's going on, but he knows that if his prayers are going to be answered, then he needs to hear this message that this man named Peter, staying with a, a tanner in Joppa, has to say. I love these verses. They're, they're so beautiful. Here's this man who's, who's standing outside the promises of God. He's praying that God would make a way for him to join the family of God, and God answers. And here we see Jesus' mission field. Jesus is at work in the hearts of outsiders. Jesus is at work in the hearts of outsiders. I love Cornelius' heart. I love his obedience. Here is this man who is what we would call a seeker. Here's, here's someone who wants to join the family of God, but doesn't think that God accepts people like him. Doesn't think that he is able to enter into God's family. And Jesus is at work in his heart, preparing him to respond to the message of the gospel. And I just want us to take a step back and ask, do we, do we believe that God is doing the same thing or able to do the same thing today? 
Do we believe that that is true here in this community, that God might not necessarily reveal himself as, to, as with Cornelius in uh, this angel and this vision, but that doesn't mean he's not at work? That God, through his mysterious providence, is at work in the hearts of people here in Spencer and the surrounding communities? Jesus, in, in the Gospel of John, tells us that the Holy Spirit is at work preparing hearts. Convicting hearts. Jesus is at work in the hearts of outsiders, preparing them to hear the message of the gospel. But that's not Jesus' only mission field. As I mentioned, we get into this story and we see it's also, also about uh, Peter and this conversion that has to take place in Peter's own heart to join in the mission of Jesus Let's go ahead and look at verses 9 through 16. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time again, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. So God is at work in Cornelius' life. He's, he's also at the same time at work in Peter's life. At the end of Acts chapter 9, we see that Peter is actually living in Joppa at this time. He's living with this man named Simon, and he's preaching the gospel throughout the, the cities of, and the towns of Judea. And around noon, Peter goes up on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house in order to pray, to spend some time in private praying to God. And as one, is, one would expect, if you're praying around noon, Peter, he gets hungry. And, and before he can grab something to eat, he starts to dream about food. That's, that's totally normal, all right? We, we, we can relate with that, right? It's actually not a dream. The Bible's really specific and explicit about that. It's a trance. It's another vision that he has. So he's thinking about food, he's hungry, and then he has this vision about food. Consider the three aspects of this vision. First, the heavens open in verse 10. Whenever we see the heavens open in Scripture, it's a sign of divine activity. So here, from the very beginning, Peter knows that whatever is about to happen is something that is important, that God is doing something. Second, we see this sheet descends from heaven. Think of a, a, a massive ship's sail. And it's coming down from the heavens, and it's filled with all different kinds of animals of the earth and of the skies. And to understand the significance of this sheet, we have to remind ourselves of Jewish purity laws from the Old Testament. Last week, we were in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we were reminded that God has called his people, both in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, to be set apart, to be holy. And one of the ways that he called Israel to be set apart was by having a completely different lifestyle from those who were around them. All of the nations that surrounded them, they were going to be set apart by living in a different way. And part of this living differently, living set apart, meant that God gave the people instructions on what types of food they could eat 
as well as what they couldn't eat. And that's what we see in Leviticus chapter 11. By the end of the first century, not only were the Jewish people following the instructions of Leviticus chapter 11, they'd actually expanded on all of these rules found in in Leviticus 11 so that they wouldn't accidentally break the commandments that God had given them in the book of Leviticus. So, in Acts chapter 10, when, when Peter sees this vision, has this vision where all kinds of animals uh, of the skies as well as on the ground, it's clear that, that Peter's vision has animals that are clean as well as those that are unclean. Animals that are allowed to eat, that he is allowed to eat in Leviticus 11, as well as animals that he is not allowed to eat in Leviticus 11. Third, notice what the voice from heaven says. It says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, I want you to put yourself in in Peter's situation at this point. He has, for his entire life, only eaten specific foods. For his entire life, he has only ever eaten clean foods. It's, It's ingrained in him. It's a part of his life. He would never consider living his life differently. It is natural for him. It's it's second nature for him to only eat certain foods. So when he hears this voice coming from heaven, the first thing that Peter thinks is that this is a test of obedience from God. God is asking me, do I really trust him? Am I really going to follow him? Am I really going to be obedient? And so he responds in the exact way that you would expect a good Jewish man in the first century to respond. He says, not a chance. Never done that. Not going to do it. No can do. But then we get this voice from heaven that says something earth-shattering. Take a look. At verse 15, and the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. So consider the parts of this vision. First, the heavens open, the sign that God is doing something. Second, the sheet that is filled with unclean animals appears. Third, Jesus says, eat this food. Peter refuses, and then Jesus makes this pronouncement. He says, don't call common what I have made clean. The text actually tells us that God, this is so important to God, that he drives this point home to Peter, and he says uh, this three times. The heavens open three times. The sheep descends three times. He says, kill and eat three times. Peter says, no, we can assume. And then God says, what I have made clean, do not call uncommon three times. He doesn't want Peter to miss this. But for Peter, it's hard to to grasp what exactly is happening. That's what we see in verse 17. Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Now, it's really easy for us, having the benefit of 2,000 years of church history, having the benefit of the scriptures and the New Testament, it's really benefit for, uh, really easy for us to see what Jesus is communicating here. But for Peter, 
there is this disconnect between every single thing he knows about God and what God is asking him to do now and saying in this vision. You see what, what God's doing in Peter's heart here? He's, he's, he's asking a lot of Peter in this moment. Just as God is at work in the heart of Cornelius, he's also at work in Peter's heart. Just as he is preparing Cornelius to be able to hear and respond to the gospel message, he's also at work in Peter's heart, preparing him to be able to share the gospel with this outsider, with this person who is not a part of God's chosen family. Peter's heart isn't hard. That's very important for us to see here. His heart is not hard, and yet God is asking him to do something that is hard. There's a crucial difference there. He's asking Peter to see Jesus not just as this Jewish Messiah, but as the king of the entire cosmos, as the king of every single language, nation, tribe, and tongue. I think Peter... It's a really good reminder to each and every one of us this morning that Jesus isn't done with his work in our hearts. Jesus isn't done working in my heart. Jesus is so committed to, to caring for people that he's continually at work renovating our hearts, aligning our hearts so that they're more and more like Jesus' heart. And most of the time, that means he's asking hard things of us. But he only asks hard things of his people because he knows that there is this unfathomable joy that awaits us when we join him in his mission to reach all sorts of people and all sorts of peoples, nations, for his sake. One of the beautiful things about Acts chapter 10 is that we see this change take place in Peter's heart progressively. It doesn't, it doesn't take place instantly. It's over the course of several verses that we see Peter finally come around to Jesus' way of doing things. That it takes time for Peter's heart to conform so that he can join Jesus in his mission. Let's pick up in verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry from Simon's house, stood at the gate and called to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, has directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he, Peter, invited them in to be his guests. What's significant here about Acts chapter 10 is that while Peter is unclear about the mission of God, 
he maybe even be reluctant about this mission of God, that all of that is overruled by this commitment from Peter to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit asks him to do hard things, he is going to be obedient. So while Peter is contemplating what this dream, this vision might mean, these men from Cornelius arrive. And when God tells Peter to travel with these men, Peter obeys. That's the key. God is fine with wrestling as long as there is this willingness to obey. As long as there is an obedient heart. God uses the willingness of Peter to obey his commands, to bring Peter into his mission to reach the outsider. Notice how this paragraph ends in verse 23. It says this, So he, Peter, invited them in to be his guests. This is huge. In the first century, devout Jews wouldn't associate with Gentiles. They certainly wouldn't eat with them. And they would never dream of allowing them to stay in their homes. So don't miss the weight of what Peter is doing here when he offers hospitality to these Gentiles. Obedience to God's commands means that Peter is going to have to step out of his comfort zone and welcome people into this house. Opening up your home, opening up your life to to those who are outsiders is is hard work. Peter saw that very clearly. It was a cultural taboo for Peter here, something that would have been unthinkable before the Holy Spirit began to work in his heart. And yet, we see here this step of obedience in following Jesus as he's, he's moving toward the mission of Jesus, and it centers around hospitality. I think a lot of times the hard asks that Jesus makes of us center around hospitality too. Welcoming in the outsider, those who are far from God. Let's keep reading in verse 23. The next day he, Peter, arose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him, but Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent for me. So the next day, Peter travels to Caesarea. It's about 30 miles away. and It takes about a day and a half for Peter and this group to travel. And when they get to Caesarea, they get to Cornelius' home. And I just want you to consider this moment from Cornelius' perspective and then also from Peter's perspective. What do you think those last few days have been like for Cornelius? 
couple days before this, he's praying, and then this angel appears, and he's terrified. And the angel says, hey, your prayers have been heard. I want you to go send for this man in Joppa. His name is Peter, and, and, and listen to what he has to say. And he responds instantly. He, 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 he's obedient without hesitation. What are those next few days like? Has he eaten? Has he slept? The text tells us he, he gathers this crowd together of his, his family and his close friends. He's gathering them all into his household. He doesn't know what they're going to hear, but he's gathered them in this expectation. How long have they been waiting for this moment? How much of that time has Cornelius spent in prayer? I imagine him, he, he's pacing. He's constantly checking the windows to see if this man, if this Peter, has finally arrived. And so when Peter finally shows up, it's, it's not a big surprise that he runs out to see him and he falls down to worship him. It's an entirely Roman thing to do, to worship a leader like Caesar. So he's just doing exactly what makes sense to him. He's falling at the feet of this man who is going to tell him finally how he can enter into the family of God. And the expectancy in this house is, is so thick that you can cut it with a knife. What about from Peter's perspective? He's been traveling for a day and a half with these Gentiles. He's had a day and a half to contemplate this vision. A day and a half to pray about what it meant. He's got another data point here that God is at work in this whole process but he still doesn't have the full picture. And so when he walks in and onto Cornelius' property and Cornelius comes running out to see him, Peter's no fool. He can, he can see, he can feel this expectancy that something big is about to happen in this moment. And he's, he's looking around. Cornelius falls at his feet and per, Peter's response, exactly what you would expect. And yet in another sense, exactly what you wouldn't expect. It's expected that he stops Cornelius from worshiping him, right? He says, hey, get up. I'm, I'm, I'm not God. Don't fall down and worship me. But what's probably unexpected is the way he says that. He, he emphasizes their shared equality. Verse 26, But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. To this point in the book of Acts, Peter and the apostles have had plenty of things and people bring things that they are offering to God and lay them at their feet. It's a sign of authority that they are the leaders of the church. So in Acts chapter 4, we see that people are making donations to the church and they come and they bring it and they place it at the feet of the apostles. Barnabas, he sells his property and comes and he brings it, at, places it at the feet of the apostles. 
Ananias and, and Sapphira, that, that fateful story, they claim that they sell all of their property and give all of it to the apostles. They lay it at the feet of the apostles. There's this double significance here in what Peter is saying. When he says, I too am a man, he's saying, yeah, I'm not God, don't worship me. But he's also saying, I'm not your superior. He's finally getting it. That he is not superior in the eyes of God. That we are both men. We are both created in the image of God. That we are both image bearers of the God of the cosmos. Peter has been entrusted with authority in God's church and now he's seen that he's not supposed to use that authority as a sign of his superiority, but rather as a way to serve others. Especially the outsider. And Peter is realizing God's doing something in this moment. He's figured out That he's supposed to come here because God has said, what I've called clean, you don't call unclean. But he still doesn't have the full picture. And so he says, why'd you send for me? I'm here. Why did you send for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, About this hour I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Notice this. Now therefore, We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Cornelius gives Peter the the final piece of the puzzle. He says, I've been been praying for a way to be brought into God's family. And this angel spoke to me. He said, to send for you And now everyone here is waiting with bated breath for this message of what you have been commanded by the Lord to tell us. So what message do you have for this gathered group of people who are outside the family of God about how we might be able to join God and His family. And in that moment, as Peter hears about this devout Gentile's prayers, as he hears about God has promised to answer these prayers by sending for Peter, as he considers essentially all of this happening at like the exact same time that is so clear that it's God's hand at work, that God has spoken to him through a vision saying, you know what, Peter, don't call unclean what I have cleaned myself. Peter's reflecting upon it all, and then he finally gets it, and he says, and Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right 
is acceptable to him. And then he shares the gospel. Peter finally gets what it means to join Jesus in his mission. This mission of Jesus to see people from every language, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, I'd say from every background, into his family. His entire paradigm of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is changed so he can join Jesus in Jesus' mission. And I want us to just ask ourselves, what about us? Will we join Jesus in his mission? That's where I want us to end this morning. There's a banner that's over this entire text. It's, it's simply this. Jesus expects big things from his followers because we can expect big things from him. That's a hard thing, but it's a beautiful thing to join Jesus in his mission. It's an uncomfortable thing. Jesus isn't particularly concerned with your comfort. Jesus wants you to be on mission with him. He wants what's best for you. He wants what's best for those who are around you. And so even though he asks big things of you, it's because we can expect big things from him. And for Peter, that meant his entire understanding of what it meant to be a part of God's family had to change. God has him showing hospitality to Gentiles, recognizing the shared equality that he has with this Gentile as an image bearer before God. God gets him to the point where he finally realizes that there is now no partiality before God, that all people are welcomed into the family of God, that anyone who responds with repentance and faith is welcome after they hear the gospel. The gospel is for anyone and for everyone. What's God asking of you? For many of us, it's a heart conversion like Peter. This, this conversion of the heart that God might be wanting to do a work in our own hearts to get us to the point where we realize that the gospel is for anyone and everyone, especially for those that we would deem too far gone for grace or those who are outsiders of the family of God. And we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to, to be obedient? Are we going to have this obedient heart to, even when it's hard, follow Jesus in his mission? For others of us, this big ask that God makes, maybe it's, it's about our actions, that God might be calling us to take this step of faith and engage in relationships with those who are, are far from Jesus, the, the outsiders of our lives, that God might be calling us to take on more than we feel like we can because he wants us to be on mission with him. Jesus expects big things from his followers because we can expect big things from him. That's always been the way that God works. It's always been the way God works. 
God called Noah to build an ark. He called Abraham to leave his entire family, his entire livelihood, and go to a nation he'd never seen before. God called Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son as a sign of obedience to him and as a test of his obedience. God called Moses to do things he felt inadequate for. God called the people of Israel to enter into and fight the people of Canaan, something that they felt like they weren't able to do. God uses people who are ordinary in extraordinary ways like Ruth and Boaz. God asked big things of King David. He said, you're going to be king, but I want you to wait for several years. That's a hard thing, waiting God called the prophets to be this voice saying, hey, follow Jesus, follow God, come back to him. And no one wanted anything to do with that. God uses the obedience and sometimes the blood of his people to spread his church to the ends of the earth. Jesus expects big things of his followers because we can expect big things from him. What if we were a church that had that cultural, culture of expectancy? That it became a part of, of who we are as a church to boldly ask people to be on mission. And not just on mission, but, but to center their lives around the mission that Jesus has given to his church. What if we were a church that was willing to send? A church that was willing to be sent? What if we were willing to sacrifice for the sake of our community? What if we were a church that joined Jesus in his mission? I don't know how we get there. I don't know what God will do through us if we do get there. But I know that God will do great things. That God is doing great things. That God uses his people when they join him in his mission to see more outsiders brought into his family. God delights in bringing people who are far from him into his family people from every background, from every race, from every stage of life. What about you? What about our church? When Jesus asks big things of us, because we can expect big things from him. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who were heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. If then God gave the same gift to them 
as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that could stand in God's way? And when the Jerusalem church heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. Jesus, it is a wonder to me that you include people in your mission. That you could have very easily, instead of sending an angel to Cornelius, saying, go, find Peter, and he'll tell you how you can be saved. You could have just told him. And yet, in your mysterious providence, it's, it's a part of your plan to have imperfect, stubborn, reluctant, broken people like me, like us, join you in your mission. Thank you for that gift, God. Help us to be obedient. When the call of the gospel is to come and die, help us to be a people who say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.